Today we're pleased to welcome Professor Thomas Schwartz from Vanderbilt University who will be talking about the potential impact of America's election year politics on the important issues of foreign policy, including the Middle East, Ukraine, and China. There could be no more timely conversation on this topic as we see our presidential politics corrupted by efforts of Russian intelligence to smear a candidate and a likely nominee pledged to abandon a NATO ally in the event of attack from Russia. To help sort out all of these issues, TNWAC board member, Dr. Breck Walker, will be the host today uh, for this webinar. Let me thank both uh, Professor Schwartz and Dr. Walker for accepting to be with us today. Thomas Allen Schwartz is the Distinguished Professor of History and Professor of Political Science and European Studies at Vanderbilt University. Originally from Rochester, New York, he studied at Columbia and Oxford Universities and completed his doctoral dissertation at Harvard University under the supervision of Professor Ernest R. May and Professor Charles Meyer. He is the author of books, uh, the books America's Germany, John J. McCoy and the Federal Republic of Germany, and Lyndon Johnson in Europe in the Shadow of Vietnam, also Harvard University Press. He was co-editor with Matthias Schulz of the Strained Alliance, U.S.-European Relations in the 1970s. His most recent book is Henry Kissinger, and American Power, a political biography published by Hill and Wang in 2020. He's the recipient of fellowships from the Social Science Research Council, the German Historical Institute, the Woodrow Wilson Center, and the Nobel Institute. He served on the Historical Advisory Committee of the Department of State and was the president of the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations. Member of the board, Rick Walker, a board member uh, of the uh, Tennessee World Affairs Council, received his PhD in diplomatic history from Vanderbilt in 2007. His dissertation was on the foreign policy of the Carter administration. He taught at Sewanee, the University of the South from 2007 to 2012, and on the University of Virginia's Semester at Sea program in spring 2013 and fall 2015. He worked as a historian in the historical office of the Office of the Secretary of Defense in 2013 and 2016, research and writing a book on early Pentagon cyber policy. Prior to becoming a history professor, Breck worked for 20 years as an investment banker, the last 10 as co-head of the corporate finance group at J.C. Bradford and Company in Nashville. He has an undergraduate degree from the University of Texas and JD and MBA degrees from Stanford University. As I mentioned, Breck serves as a member of the board of directors of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. One important housekeeping note, we look forward to your questions as part of the program. To ask your question, please enter them in the Zoom Q&A queue at the bottom of your Zoom screen. That's the only place our moderator will be able to see your question. Now, uh, let me uh, hand over the program to uh, Dr. Breck Walker and uh, Professor Thomas Schwartz. Thank you, Pat. Uh, Tom, welcome, and thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on this program. Hey, I did want to add just a personal note to Pat's uh, introduction in that uh, 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 I was a student of Dr. Schwartz's, a PhD student, got my PhD, uh, and he was my advisor. So I, I can personally attest to, uh, uh, to Tom's uh, opinion, which is always informed, insightful, and, uh, uh, and balanced. So I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Uh, Tom, if it's okay, let's let's because uh, we're going to talk about the influence of American politics on American foreign policy. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to start out very broadly. Um, the title of the webinar today, uh, "At the Water's Edge," of course, is a quote from Senator Arthur Vandenberg back in the Truman administration, who memorably said that politics stops at the water's edge. And he meant, of course, that American foreign policy should be. And was first and it should be and was first and foremost bipartisan and not soiled by efforts to seek political advantage. And Tom, my question just to start off is uh, that quote uh, Do you think that is true of American foreign policy during most of the post World War II period? And even if not true, has politics uh, in the United States become 
an increasingly important influence on American foreign policy in the 2000s relative to what came before. Well, thanks, Breck. I, uh, I I love using the Vandenberg quote because I think it's 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 interesting. It reflects the desire of many at the start of the Cold War to have a bipartisan foreign policy to to project American uh, power as united against uh, what was then seen to be an existential threat, the Soviet Union. But even in the uh, even at points in which unity was most present, for example, in the passage of the Marshall Plan, an extraordinary financial effort to help Europe recover, even even at those moments, there was always an element of political advantage um, that is almost built into our system. Our foreign policy uh, does reflect very much the values, interests, ideas of the American people as they're expressed through their president and through their Congress. And since 1940, I would argue, almost every presidential election has had some type of foreign policy component, some more than others. And in that sense, I think um, uh, it, the, the statement of Vandenberg, while it expressed an ideal, never really captured the truth of the matter, which was that we were going to be arguing about foreign policy in our presidential election years. During the Cold War, I think there was a greater emphasis on trying to maintain a, a bipartisan foreign policy. And so candidates were careful about not attacking fundamental elements of foreign policy. So exa for, for example, I think the containment of the Soviet Union was largely accepted by um, both Democrats and Republicans for the duration of the Cold War, even if they at times differed on the methods and ways about to go about it. Um, I think since the end of the Cold War, it's been much more problematic and foreign policy has been much more uh, driven by partisan questions, um, particularly uh, even after 9-11 over the conduct of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And certainly in the last 10 years, and particularly uh, the uh, whiplash of foreign policies between the Obama, Trump and then Biden administration, uh, the partisanship and politics of American foreign policy has been much more direct. Okay, well, could you just to, uh, before we get into the specifics of uh, the upcoming presidential election and what role foreign policy may play in, in, in who wins, could you give us one or two examples of over the last 40 years or so of US foreign policy being influenced by presidential elections? Yes, well, um, the degree of influence is always a challenge. I mean, political scientists like to be able to, to come up with numbers I think that's not a good approach to foreign policy. It doesn't, it, it, it's not going to have, it's not going to be easily measured um, uh, compared to say the economy or other issues. But I think when I was thinking of examples, well, the two that occurred to me, one is a little bit more distant and that's the election of 1980 between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Um, it was conducted during a time in which Americans were being held hostage in Iran, the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan. And the question of toughness in foreign policy versus recklessness in foreign policy became a fundamental issue. And Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter argued this. Um, Reagan arguing that uh, the uh, hostage crisis and the Afghanistan invasion came because of Carter's weakness. Carter arguing that Reagan was a dangerous uh, a figure who might uh, trip the nuclear button. And that was uh, an issue in the background. Um, it probably played at the margins a little bit of an issue, but I think overall the election ended up being a landslide for Reagan, largely because of his performance in the debate and his ability to calm American spheres about what he might do. Uh, the other election, I think, which foreign policy played a role was the 2004 election between John, uh, George W. Bush and John Kerry, where the question of the conduct of the Iraq war and the war on terrorism as a whole was out there. Um, the Opposition to the war in Iraq energized the Democratic base and was a part of John Kerry's campaign. But at the same time, the uh, sense that Americans had that they wanted the security of a tough president, George W. Bush, played on it. Osama bin Laden released a video right before the election. The election was very close, uh, came down to thousands of votes in Ohio, actually. Um, and I think foreign policy was at least indirectly uh, an issue in that election. Um, undoubtedly, uh, uh, political scientists would always claim that the economy is more important, but
But given the closeness of recent American political elections, presidential elections, I don't think one could discount the fact that foreign policy might have an influence in particular states. Well, thank you. Good, good, good examples uh, on that. I have one more broad question, and then we'll get into specifics, talking about uh, the upcoming election and assuming in our conversation, I think, that the two candidates are going to be President Biden and former President Trump. But uh, one more broad question. Uh, would you give us an overview of, the, of, of what you see, at least, as the key differences between Presidents Biden and Trump in their, uh, from a foreign policy perspective and their objectives and their broad approach? Uh, what, are the, what are some of the uh, key differences in objectives and objectives uh, and, as I said, broad approach in foreign policy? Well, keeping in mind that presidents often say things rhetorically that they end up modifying when they become president, um, I think uh, you can get an idea of the differences in uh, the way uh, President Biden came into office. Um, one of the things he likes to say is that he came into office and he attended his first NATO summit and told all the leaders, America's back. And what he meant by that is that America, um, his vision of American foreign policy is engagement in alliances, engagement in multilateral diplomacy, consultations with uh, other nations, and that this is a high priority uh, that he uh, places. Uh, in that sense, he is much less unilateralist um, than uh, President Trump was. And, and that that's a difference that I think reflects um, on their their basic outlook. Uh, President Trump often gave the impression that he thought other countries were out to take advantage of the United States, either economically through trade or by not paying their adequate amount for defense when the United States was providing defense. Whereas Joe Biden has, of course, been of a different rhetorical character, much more conciliatory toward the Europeans, much more um, engaged in wanting to uh, work with uh, other nations and multilateral organizations wanting to re-enter, for example, the nuclear agreement with Iran, which Trump canceled. Um, these are the, the that general overtone. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, that in the past, one of the differences might have been on economics. But in fact, Joe Biden has maintained many of the tariffs that uh, Donald Trump did. So even though I think both of the, or Donald Trump certainly had a more economically nationalist approach in talking about tariffs and that. Um, the, the Democratic Party has shifted its own uh, from its own support for free trade and uh, international agreements toward a more uh, tariff-oriented uh, protectionist approach. So on that, the differences aren't as acute as they were. But in the, in the style and the manner of dealing with foreign countries um, and talking about issues abroad, I think the key difference seems to be a, a, a willingness to work with um, allies and respect allies' uh, judgments and considerations, um, which is much greater in the Biden case than in the Trump case. Okay. Okay. So in some sense, they the, the two would have a different view of the value of diplomacy, at least as traditionally practiced with, you know, patience and negotiation and measured responses and so forth and so on. Yes, I think uh, Trump really is of the opinion that America does what it what 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 it should do in matter of its national interest, and other countries either respond to that or or just have to deal with it. Whereas Biden at least conveys the notion that he wants to consult um, and uh, recognize that America's role is 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 uh, first among many rather than uh, the predominant power that can really tell others what to do. In that sense, I think he. Um, he is a much more traditional, in the in the vein, much more traditional American leaders uh, since World War II, of uh, uh, valuing the NATO alliance, valuing alliances in general and cooperation, and believing that um, uh, through alliances you have much more power than uh, acting unilaterally. Whereas I think Trump shows the frustration of many Americans with alliances, uh, believing in some ways that allies inhibit uh, the strong exertion of American leadership, and that. Uh, the United States should simply lead and others should follow. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, moving on then to the to the most recent crisis, I think the one that the media has headlined almost every day since uh, since October the 7th, and, and the one where the Biden administration seems to be perhaps recalibrating 
its approach recently, perhaps for political reasons, and that's, of course, the Hamas terrorist attack and the Israeli uh, response. So uh, from Biden's perspective, what are the politics of this situation in the lead up to the November election? And are we already seeing uh, the politics affecting Biden's approach to things? And then uh, tied to that, uh, how will Trump likely try to use this conflict, if at all, to his own advantage in this campaign uh, if things continue to be in conflict uh, in coming weeks and months? Well, the Biden administration um, took a very traditional response uh, to the Hamas attack on Israel. It supported Israel wholeheartedly. It embraced Israel. This is the type of response that was traditional among American leaders when Israel faced a crisis. Richard Nixon, who was not known necessarily for his fondness for Israel or for American Jews, nevertheless uh, completely embraced uh, Israel when it was attacked in the uh, Yom Kippur War in 1973. Biden followed in that pattern. Um, and he, in, in the sense of vis immediately visited Israel, this sort of thing. Um, what has been happening, of course, is that that has had a particular effect on the left or progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and particularly in the case of Michigan on Arab Americans who feel that uh, Biden's response where they supported him um, in Michigan, which is a, a battleground state, one of the six states seen as absolutely crucial to the election uh, for uh, uh, between Biden and Trump. Uh, they they were very alienated from it. And it seems as though the Biden administration through outreach to the, those communities is trying to uh, recalibrate its response and now is pushing for a temporary ceasefire. It still vetoed the resolution yesterday that uh, would have called for a permanent ceasefire. So it's still showing um, support for Israel's goals in the uh, uh, dealing with Hamas, basically to try to get rid of Hamas as a negotiating partner and 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 defeat it wholeheartedly, but at the same time, it is concerned about the humanitarian impact in Gaza, uh, the possibility of an Israeli assault on Rafah that would uh, cause uh, civilian casualties and that would um, uh, um, damage uh, the uh, image of the Western countries in trying to to restrict. Um, uh, the type of collateral damage that has been taking place. So um, I think I think the administration the, uh, and Biden's political party has modified what might have been his his stance. On the other hand, and this is this is getting into perhaps speculation, they still haven't come out with the type of measures they might have if they really wanted to restrict Israel, uh, either by tying aid. Uh, to uh, compelling Israel to 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 make uh, to to accept a ceasefire or something, so they've they they've tried to on the surface at least show that they have become concerned about civilian casualties, but they're not they're not pushing Israel as hard as they might I think, which demonstrates that they still feel that most Americans support Israel's war aims in trying to get rid of the uh, danger posed by Hamas, which was demonstrated on October seventh. The flip side of that is that looking at Donald Trump, and Donald Trump in this case, Donald Trump was a very pro-Israel president. He moved the capital, he moved America's embassy to Jerusalem. He recognized Israel's uh, possession of the Golan Heights. Um, he was uh, strongly supportive of the Abraham Accords between Israel and Arab nations. Um, so Donald Trump has not been as outspoken on this issue as he has, for example, been on others. Uh, connected to foreign policy. He's been, um, in a way, he may be taking advantage of Biden's discomfort with his own political supporters on this. And he may figure that he needs to do very little uh, to to really, that, that this is one of these things that's just going to affect Biden. And in fact, uh, Trump's support, I'd, I'd, I'd be very interested to see whether Trump will be more outspoken on this issue because his website and his uh, statement of issues shows him as a strong supporter of Israel without getting into the specifics of how he would handle uh, the Hamas-Gaza situation if it was still going on at election time. Now, I think, I think there is a strong possibility that Israel will try to end uh, the conflict before then through perhaps an offensive in Rafah and, and capturing or killing the, the the Hamas leadership and ending the war that way. But we'll have to see. Well, do you think if, what is your, and asking for speculation now, what is your 
feeling about whether or not the conflict will still be in Gaza will still be going on in November as it is now, violent, deadly, massive, massive casualties, uh, increasing an increasing turn in world opinion, perhaps against uh, that approach by Israel. Uh, will we likely have a resolution of some sort before November? I think we might have at least a diminishment in in how important it is that Israel will secure uh, Rafa in some manner um, and eliminate the final bits of the battalions. Israel has been largely fairly militarily successful in taking out a large part of the Hamas force. Where's interesting to me is whether they decide after having, if they do successfully, uh, eliminate Hamas's rule over Gaza, whether they decide also to go after Hezbollah in Lebanon, because Hezbollah's uh, launching of missiles has made northern Israel largely unpopulated. Uh, people have evacuated, and that is an untenable situation for Israel to accept. And I could see also the conflict then extending into Hezbollah, and that would possibly extend the conflict uh, into the uh, later months of this year and possibly to November. Well, the, uh, uh, well, thank you for that. Well, let me ask, uh, let me ask the bigger issue in the Middle East, uh, I think, looking uh, out uh, uh, some years, is how best to, from the U.S. perspective, is how best to rein in Iran and its proxies from continuing to foment chaotic uh, unrest in the area. Could you compare and, because Trump, well, you know, Trump's probably one of his signature uh, accomplishments or partial accomplishment of his term, I think, were the Abraham Accords. Could you compare and contrast a little bit Trump's Middle East policy in his first term to Biden's Middle East policy in his, in his first term, especially as it relates to Iran? Well, I think there's a contrast, a pretty sharp contrast there. Biden or Trump, one of his first trips was to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Biden didn't go to Saudi Arabia. He actually denounced uh, the crown prince there, MBS, um, uh, because of his killing of the journalist from the Washington Post, uh, Khashoggi. Um, and in a sense, Biden has had to come around to accepting the Abraham Accords, which he was not as enthusiastic about when he comes came into pre uh, as president. The other signature point of Trump's presidency was the uh, killing of um, the Iranian uh, head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Soleimani, uh, which was a very forceful uh, attack on Iran. Um, the Biden administration came in with the desire to re-enter the nuclear pact. So there was a, there's been actually in that sense a contrast between the two, with the Biden administration actually moving closer to the Trump methods, um, especially as Iran has become much more difficult, as has moved in advance on its atomic program and um, has uh, unleashed its resistance in the Middle East. So I would think uh, the Iranians uh, probably would fear um, Trump coming back into power, uh, uh, fear what he might do. Um, and Biden, on the other hand, uh, probably has moved away from uh, the type of policy that sought to accommodate Iran uh, that was particularly a signature part of the Obama policy. There, I think it's it's a much more confused situation, and it would be interesting as the candidates come up whether they uh, start talking about Iran in similar ways or whether the Biden administration actually uh, indicates it's going to continue to pursue a type of conciliatory policy with the hope that that will lead Iran uh, to minimize or to reduce its um, use of armed proxies in the Middle East and come back to a nuclear agreement. Is it, I'm going to close out our discussion on this, on the political sides of what's going on in uh, political, political side of what's going on in Gaza. Is, do you think it's fair to say that uh, that uh, in that foreign policy crisis, uh, Biden has more to lose than probably Trump has to gain in the sense that that if he doesn't uh, begin to rein uh, Israel in, in some respects, that he runs the risk of losing some of his domestic base? Yes. Yeah. No. I think I think this is Biden. Biden has a tougher time on this. Trump's base is largely very pro-Israel, supportive of it. Um, it, it it's not going to be shaken by by um, uh, the issues on the Middle East, whereas Biden's is. And in particular, and again, you know, I I know this is you know political scientists draw. Uh, larger maps and, and the rest of the politics of this, but this really reflects more the politics of a state like Michigan. Um, obviously, 
it was interesting to me that one of the things the Biden administration, uh, Biden campaign did was run ads in Michigan um, touting uh, its support for NATO, particularly because Michigan also has a large population of Eastern European immigrants or descendants of immigrants from Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, countries affected by potential so Russian aggression. So it was trying to, in some ways, beef up a group or constituency in Michigan against the situation which is, has lost favor with, with the Arab Americans. And so I think uh, the interesting thing about this particular presidential campaign, if it is Biden-Trump, is that it may come down to looking at a, a very few number of states, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and um, uh, Wisconsin, and then in uh, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia, in which the dynamics on foreign policy are quite different in each of those. Okay, okay, thank you for that. So moving on to Ukraine now, and let's talk about that for uh, a couple of minutes. Republicans seem determined to, at least at this point, to tie continued aid, U.S. aid to Ukraine, and, and perhaps Israel too, for that matter, but to tie U.S. aid to Ukraine to congressional approval of a Republican approach to, the, to, the, to our crisis on the uh, southern border. And I'm wondering, is there any historical precedent for tying domestic political goals so directly to national security issues? Um. In public, in a public manner in which this one has been handled, no, there's not really as, as uh, in my memory, as directly a connection there. Uh, privately, uh, votes have been traded for domestic favors for foreign aid, foreign trade issues, other uh, trade issues, of course, had a lot of log rolling in terms of who would vote for what. Um, when they were seeing the NAFTA agreement or other other agreements. But on an issue of national security, to have it tied as directly uh, to immigration. But but one, what, what one has to understand is the Republicans have reformulated the issue of immigration into one of national security. They speak of an invasion at the southern border. Um, they they have highlighted it uh, because their base is is uh, dramatically concerned with the numbers of immigrants and have put it in those terms that this is something that really threatens national security. So they've tried to change the terms of the immigration debate significantly and uh, tying it then to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Uh, but I think uh, uh, depending on how you see it, if you see it uh, still is largely a domestic issue, and immigration has always gone back and forth. It's a, it's an issue that uh, at times has been largely fought out more in terms of our domestic politics, um, but now it's also being considered, especially after 9-11, when the question was, well, what happens if terrorists come across the border, and uh, this sort of question, um, which of course has been highlighted as well, um, then I think you get uh, this type of uh, linkage, which you did not have in the past. Okay. Well, uh, in brief, uh, could you outline what you see as the Biden and Trump approaches to the war in Ukraine? And if you have an opinion on it, which do you think in the lead up to the election, assuming there continues to be somewhat of a stalemate on the battlefield, which approach Biden or Trump's plays better uh, politically to, to the U.S. electorate? Well, I, I probably... Would, would argue that we shouldn't overestimate the degree that the Ukraine issue will have an impact on domestic politics. I don't think it has the emotional intensity of the Israeli-Middle East question. That said, I think um, the Biden approach has been, of course, to support allies, uh, NATO supporting Ukraine uh, in its war, uh, denouncing Putin um, quite strongly uh, for his aggression. Uh, the Trump approach has been an interesting uh, uh, issue because on the one hand, Trump is quite fond of saying Putin never would have invaded if I was president because I knew how to handle him. And Trump can take credit for having given more aid, military aid and, and more important military aid than the Obama administration. The Obama administration, of course, sat back when uh, Putin first invaded Ukraine and appeased Russia on the early invasion. So in that sense, um, it set, it, it, uh, uh, Trump was tougher on Russia, at least initially. Now, of course, uh, Trump has sort of changed his tone 
he talks about negotiating a deal within the first uh, month or or whatever with with Putin that would undoubtedly mean Ukraine would have to compromise significantly on the loss of territory. Um, he refuses to denounce Putin for what he did, uh, killing the killing of Navalny, and he continue. And in that sense, he he has again restoked fears that he has an unusually unusual affection for Putin, or at least a, a, a respect for Putin that Joe Biden has, of course, made very clear that he does not have. And then he sees Putin as a, a killer and as someone who has violated almost every international norm. Um, to a certain extent, that could be an issue in the election. I don't think it'll play as fundamental a role, but it could be this, um, uh, in a way, uh, if you remember 2016, and uh, one of the, the things that is, is strong in my memory is that first debate uh, where, um, uh, Hillary Clinton called Trump Putin's puppet, and he uh, he responded angrily to her. And you know this this argument about who was uh, tougher or would be stronger on Russia was certainly a part of their argument at that time. Okay, and so how do you think, in your view, how does the war in Ukraine end, and in what kind of general time frame with what kind of diplomatic result? Well, I would hope. I would hope actually, and I, I do see indications of this in the Senate vote and in the efforts of some House lawmakers, that there won't be an abandonment of Ukraine, that there will be some type of aid package passed. I, I see, it seems to me that despite the uh, sort of very uh, impassioned arguments of someone like Ohio Senator J.D. Vance or some of the other figures, that there's still a, a, a bipartisan support for Ukraine and especially in the wake of the Navalny killing, which sort of underlines how dangerous or how threatening Putin is to Western values and ideas. I think even though there is this, I, I think there will be support for Ukraine and financial assistance going uh, to help Ukraine. I do think in the long run, we're probably looking at some type of compromise, um, which I still, I think if it has to come, I hope it comes with some type of uh, American security guarantee for Ukraine connected to an unwillingness to recognize Russian gains um, legally. I think there could be a willingness to recognize them in a de facto manner that they have conquered the eastern provinces uh, without accepting that uh, de jure or legally and that um, there might be then uh, a willingness then to incorporate Ukraine with a security guarantee, maybe in NATO, maybe not, but sometimes, and then Ukraine also in the EU as uh, also as a result, that some types of incentives given to Ukraine uh, that would allow it to come out of the war with, with a real gain in its international stature, even if it does not, is not able to regain the territory that it's lost uh, to Russian aggression. One last uh, point and question on uh, on Ukraine. Uh, former President Trump, of course, as you suggested, has made no secret of his admiration of Putin, President Putin of Russia, in some respects at least, and Biden, to the contrary, portrays Putin as an authoritarian war criminal. And uh, so interestingly to me, and I don't know it was whether it was with a twinkle in his eye or a smirk, but it's uh, Putin's recent comment that he would prefer to deal with a traditionalist like Biden than an unpredictable uh, person like Trump, an unpredictable president, leader like Trump might be. What do you make of all this? Uh, is this uh, just interesting, much ado about nothing, or are uh, it, could these differences play some sort of, have some sort of impact uh, in the upcoming election? Well, for one, of course, I think anybody who thinks that Putin, what Putin says is is the, is what he actually believes, <laughs> is dangerously naive. Uh, you know, Putin will say, deploys his rhetoric strategically. Uh, this doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to him. And as, in fact, during the, the the interview with Tucker Carlson, what he said about Ukraine indicated he still holds the belief that Ukraine should be part of Russia, and so he hasn't given up on the idea of conquering all of the country. Um, that said, I think what he was doing with the Biden uh, endorsement, to the extent that it was an endorsement, uh, was, I think, playing with Americans. In, in effect, this is something Trump could tout. Uh, you know, Putin prefers Biden because Biden's weaker. Um, he's predictable. 
whereas I'm not. And that feeds into Trump's argument that Putin never would have invaded Ukraine had Trump been president. And I think, I think in that sense, it's it's uh, Putin is in effect um, uh, saying uh, or helping Trump. And it may be that Putin does believe that Trump uh, would cut a deal that would force Ukraine uh, to accept its territorial losses um, and that Trump's own uh, skepticism about NATO means that even if uh, Ukraine achieved a NATO guarantee, that if it's Trump as president, that doesn't mean anything because NATO no longer has the sort of Article 5's um, assurance that America will come to its aid because uh, America will make a decision on based on whether countries have paid up their their dues and have uh, hit that uh, 2% mark or 3% mark, whatever it is. So in that sense, um, he could be playing on the idea that Trump would make a deal and that uh, the deal would be meaningless because NATO, any guarantee that uh, the United States gave Ukraine through NATO would be uh, uh, useless with Trump as president. Okay, okay. Well, moving lastly, uh, let's talk about China for a few minutes, if that's okay. There, there seem to be so many issues surrounding U.S.-Chinese relations. I mean, economic uh, relations, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea, Taiwan, uh, an ongoing and maybe accelerating arms race and perhaps signs of increasing collaboration between China and other countries that are anti-Western in their outlooks, just as a couple of examples. Uh, I, I suppose, and I'm asking your opinion on this, I suppose that China is going to be in some sense a punching bag, a big punching bag for both Biden and Trump campaigns this fall. Do you see that? Um, I'm not sure because um, Trump uh, rightfully uh, can say that he uh, saw China as a threat. I mean, he likes to say, I got along with Xi Jinping, but he did impose tariffs. Um, he did... Uh, uh, talk about the COVID virus as the China virus and, and attack China on that grounds. Um, he has talked about putting on a 10% tariff across the board. Um, so uh, toughness toward China uh, could also blur in the election. Um, I think it's clear the Biden administration very much wanted to move toward a uh, a focus on China in and the Western and the and the Pacific region. Part of his argument for getting out of Afghanistan so precipitously was to focus more on China. Um, the Quad arrangement with Japan, uh, Australia, and India is also an anti-China uh, type of alliance that the Biden administration has promoted. Uh, so I think both candidates uh, might try to um, out-tough uh, each other on China and what they say about China. Now, the Trump administration uh, also uh, one of the interesting things here would be where Taiwan comes in, because Joe Biden has said the United States should defend Taiwan. And then immediately after he says that, um, people in his administration backtrack it and say, no, 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 that's not what the president meant. Uh, Trump also at the beginning of his administration actually was uh, quite outspoken on Taiwan and then uh, dialed that back. Um, that's going to be an interesting test. It will be interesting to see. I doubt that the two candidates will actually debate each other if it's Biden and Trump. I don't think there will be a debate, but it will be interesting how they at least position themselves on Taiwan um, as an issue in the uh, election. Okay, thank you. Um, so, uh, as you suggest, probably Biden and Trump agree that China is perhaps the most crucial strategic challenge facing the United States in coming years. Uh, what do you think would be, uh, can you predict what the differences uh, in their China policies would be between a second Biden administration or a second Trump administration? Well, the interesting thing is, and this is there's a, a long uh, piece today in the Washington Post on this, um, China's experiencing significant economic uh, difficulties now. The property market, um, its own, uh, coming out of COVID, um, the degree to which Xi Jinping has prioritized uh, ideological purity over economic pragmatism in a way that China in the past did not. And so China's growth rate has declined significantly. Um, and China faces a demographic challenge. It's getting 
older before it's getting rich. Um, it's got a substantial uh, it's a demographic bust uh, in which uh, one of the they're trying to encourage Chinese women to have babies, but they're not they're being very successful at it. And they have an increasing number of elderly people to support. So China's weakness economically may actually also pose an issue for the United States. Um, and uh, I think we have been thinking about China as 10 feet tall, as likely to challenge us in all sorts of ways, but it's also facing its own set of issues. And that may be an area where the United States could actually benefit. Um, it could actually offer China some incentives to try to get China away from its uh, seeming alliance with Russia, Iran, North Korea, and all of the other uh, bad actors who plague the United States. Uh, China has been uh, in the past more pragmatic about its opposition. And I think there are real opportunities for both administrations, you both Trump and Biden coming into power, to actually try to engage China in ways to um, encourage it to behave or uh, uh, conduct itself um, uh, internationally in ways that are not as hostile to American interests. Uh, and I think economics and trade might be a way to incentivize some of that behavior. But it will be, I think, I think both candidates uh, are going to be careful about looking weak on China. Um, but I think in both a Biden administration and even a, a second Trump administration, I think you will see some attempts to try also to use carrots as well as sticks with China. And is that you're you're obviously touching on it, but uh, what if you don't mind? What are your thoughts on uh, how the U.S. should approach China's continuing economic and military rise? Overcoming, well, like I said, I, I think its rise is something we should recognize as some challenges that they have their own sets of difficulties. So compared to China, our economy is relatively strong. Uh, you know, some of some people would argue that China's rise. And, and particularly Xi Jinping's uh, belief that uh, China would be the dominant power came out of the, the 2008 uh, global recession, where it seemed that the authoritarian countries like China did so much better than the democracies. Now it looks the other way around. The authoritarian countries are having problems with their economies and, and keeping up, whereas the democracies, especially the United States, has actually got a fairly strong economy, even with our uh, dysfunctional political system. So I think I think there may be uh, opportunities for the United States uh, in uh, exercising sort of global economic leadership and the rest uh, to at least play on what China wants to achieve. That uh, Xi Jinping, as authoritarian and as ideologically uh, directed as he is, still faces real difficulties that he wants to solve, uh, jobs for young people, which are really a problem in China, uh, renewing China's economic growth, uh, these sorts of things where the United States could play a role, much greater role than um, his relationship with a country as uh, militarily overstretched as Russia is these days, or a country as sanctioned and uh, uh, also facing real economic challenges like Iran. So I think I think we do have some cards to play with China which I hope uh, might be the case. Okay, well, uh, Tom, thank you very much. I'm gonna turn now to some of the questions that we have uh, on both what we have talked about and, and a couple of questions on what we haven't uh, at this point. And uh, one of the first questions concerns, and I, you, you touched on it at the top, but concerns uh, the relations between Western Europe, NATO, and the United States, and the sharp contrast that uh, President Trump and President Biden seem to draw on how the U.S. should uh, regulate those relationships. And the question is, one, could you expand on that? How nervous are the Europeans uh, about uh, a Trump presidency, uh, or at least most of the European countries? And, and uh, I guess related to that, do you think that uh, uh, the question is, do you think European policy will dramatically change uh, in terms of their own military preparedness and diplomacy, depending upon who in the U.S. is elected? Well, this is an interesting question because I do think uh, Europeans, and uh, in, in, uh, particular, say, a country like Germany, um, are worried about um, a possible Trump presidency. Uh, they take his words about 
you know, if you don't pay, I'm going to encourage Russia to do what it wants, this sort of thing, quite seriously. Whereas many Americans, uh, particularly some of Trump's allies in the Senate, like Marco Rubio or um, uh, you know, and others uh, who are supporters of NATO, uh, say that, you, you know, basically we should see Trump as simply trying to encourage the Europeans to spend more on defense. I, I do think that Trump, uh, a Trump presidency, a second Trump term, his approach to NATO would not be as moderated as it was by the type of personnel he had uh, employed in the first administration. Someone like John Bolton, uh, who is a strong believer in NATO, he's not going to appoint anyone like him again. Um, he's going to appoint more uh, true believers, uh, more Trump acolytes who are going to be more hostile to NATO. So I, I do think a Trump presidency would be different. Um, and the question of NATO's continued relevance and existence would be on the table in a way that um, even at the, its worst in the first Trump administration, a lot of his uh, diplomats and others, um, including Pompeo, for example, the Secretary of State, did not really accept that NATO should be, uh, that the U.S. should get out of NATO, whereas I think Trump might bring people who actually think that. And that may then encourage the Europeans to spend more. Now, I... <laughs> Uh, having watched Europe for a long time, I think that is a difficult thing for the Europeans to accept. Um, now, you know, France does have atomic weapons, so France may not, France may feel that as long as it has a nuclear shield, uh, it doesn't really have to worry about it. But I think Eastern European countries would be deeply worried about uh, uh, whether they have an American support. They would spend more but Germany, again, also uh, is a country where I think it would be very hard for the chancellor to get the type of, of uh, defense uh, spending that would really be necessary for Germany to defend Europe on its own. So I would be more skeptical that Europe would really come to be defense. And I would think what you might see is a calibration of European interest toward a more conciliatory role toward Russia, which is not something that's in America's interest, but might happen as a result of um, uh, the weakening of NATO that would come with the Trump presidency. And uh, related to that, uh, and maybe you just answered it, but another question that has come through is uh, uh, Trump's policies on trying on, on, on a very directly and almost an in-your-face kind of way uh, challenging uh, Western Europe, NATO nations to increase their de defense spending, uh, you know, above the level that they committed to in prior years. And I guess there have been a few of the smaller NATO countries, at least, that have done so. Yes. Uh, but do you think that uh, that that uh, if Trump's elected, that uh, that that is the if if there is an approach that works to get them to do that, that's the only approach, uh, or 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 not? Well, you know, Germany promised a wave after the Ukraine invasion. So, I mean, the fear of Russia has also spurred increased defense spending. But I, you know, and here I, I, um, I, can, I, I could echo the late um, Ambassador John Kornblum, who used to do these webinars often, that Europe doesn't, he, he even doubted whether Europe had that will without the United States, that, that, that he saw the United States as essentially the European power, which could bring European countries to do more. But the idea that they could, without the United States, um, have the type of defense capability to deal with Russia, a nuclear um, armed Russia, is, I think, skeptical. He was skeptical, and I am too. And I I think in that sense, uh, Trump could pull down the whole edifice uh, in a sort of Samson-like way if he chooses to. Uh, of of North Atlantic security and the the type of thing that has kept the peace, and I, I I do find that one of the more disturbing elements. Now Trump would say that of course he's out to simply get them to spend more, and some would spend more, but I don't think it would ever come to be as adequate uh, for uh, a true defense as um, uh, what it is with the United States now. And if if Trump then saw that as a reason to pull the United States out, I don't think the Europeans would be able to step up. Uh, another question we have back on the differences between a uh, Trump, a, a second Trump administration or a second Biden administration as it relates to as it relates to American foreign policy. The question is uh, uh, that it seems like here's the question that it, it seems like both Biden and Trump have a very different perspective on the value of diplomacy 
uh, and for that matter, would bring very different kinds of people into the leadership positions in the diplomatic realm if they were elected for the second term. Could you comment or make any observations you have on that between the two? Well, I think what's interesting in that is, and this is where it would be different, in the first Trump administration, a lot of the people he brought in, and again, I'd look to someone like John Bolton or Pompeo, were, even though they adjusted their rhetoric sometimes somewhat to, to Trump policies, they were still, they were people who still believed in the basic value of diplomacy alliances, uh, the United States' role as a world leader, the importance of our soft power of supporting democracy, human rights. I think the the interesting thing would be the type of people he might bring in a second Trump administration will not be like that. They will not be traditionalists in the same manner. Um, they He has defined and outlined a very different approach now by his denunciation of the more traditional uh, figures that he had in his first administration, many of whom have, of course, broken with him over his uh, handling of January 6th and his general treatment of foreign policy. So I do think he would have a much more uh, that the people coming into his uh, and who would be serving him would reflect more the neo-isolationist America first agenda that wants to see the United States as a world leader, but disdains the type of, of diplomacy or uh, engagement in alliances that has been the essence of American uh, leadership uh, in the past. It would be more the United States proclaiming itself a power that other countries either follow or don't, but uh, be warned of what we might do if you don't, uh, we, that we will act as we see fit. Uh, whereas I think the Biden administration will continue to um, follow a much more traditional line um, of diplomacy. I do think in this case, one of the things that will be different in a, a second Trump um, presidency would be uh, personnel. Uh, the personnel will not be uh, drawn from the same types of people that he used in the first uh, era. Well, we have uh, one more question that I'm going to uh, ask, and then uh, from our from our audience, and then I have one last question to close with. But the question from the audience is on on, on Taiwan, and uh, and the question is uh, the question is what are in your mind the U.S. obligations? I know there's a lot of history to this, but what are the U.S. obligations to Taiwan in your mind, and what is the advantage today? of maintaining this ambiguity as opposed to a more firm statement, particularly if it's a statement that the U.S. is uh, going to defend ta Taiwan in some sense. Uh, why not make that statement? I've, um, I've often thought that uh, a firm statement would be better. What the argument against it that I have heard and I respect is that Taiwan is so crucial an issue within the uh, leadership of the Communist Party, within the leadership of China's uh, Politburo, that to do that would be sticking, uh, uh, be putting a stick in the eye of a cyclops. There, it'd be, it'd be taking, it'd be doing something that would be extraordinarily provocative uh, to that group, and that by maintaining ambiguity, it allows those who don't want to engage in military aggression within the Politburo to still have uh, something to call on. And the argument being that they would, would then argue again, pragmatically against a uh, Chinese military aggression simply because we don't know what the United States will do and, and that, that that actually helps their argument uh, there. Um, I, you know, again, history offers different examples on this one. Um, uh, there's the argument that our ambiguous state before 1950 uh, encouraged the Russians uh, to support North Korea's invasion of South Korea. Um, that is out there, um, uh, the idea that uh, if we don't if we don't state firmly that we will defend Taiwan, uh, that that's going to encourage China. I, I I think there's a lot of value in the old American tradition uh, hammered out by Nixon and Kissinger that the United States recognizes there's only one China uh, and encourages peaceful reunification or peaceful uh, uh, discussion. Uh, we do have, I think, on an emotional and a human rights level, a, a sense of obligation to the people of Taiwan who have built a democracy 
um, that we support and, and uh, believe in, I, I think to maintain that ambiguity that we might act and that uh, I would hope that we would do all sorts of contingency planning around that issue that we signal to the uh, Chinese communists that this would be a very costly thing to invade. But I also recognize that it might be helpful given our long-term relationship with China to maintain uh, ties to the mainland, ties to uh, an openness that does not provoke uh, a, a real reaction against um, uh, us for uh, essentially saying Taiwan is a separate state. That's uh, why the United States still says we don't want Taiwan to proclaim independence, uh, this sort of thing. Okay, and, and so here is my uh, closing question then uh, uh, for your uh, conversation today. So uh, relative to previous presidential elections in the, you know, over the last, uh, well, let's say in the 20th century, uh, and, and given the way the table's set right now with regard to foreign policy, assuming that there are no new crises that develop and so forth between now and the election, uh, will foreign policy play a play could play a bigger role in the election in terms of its outcome uh, than has been the case in the past? Or at the end of the day, do you think it's going to, this election coming up is going to turn primarily on domestic issues, personalities, and the like? Um, my hunch, my hunch right now, and given the closeness between Biden and Trump in the public opinion polls, is that it will not be mostly foreign policy issues that that i i have a feeling that it's going to be more cultural issues things like abortion for the democrats um immigration which is both cultural and also has practical other issue effects but uh for the republicans so i i would have a, a feeling that it won't be as as central um, especially if the election is largely fought off in the in the few states that where it's a real contest. Again, the exception comes in a place like Michigan, um, where you do have a substantial Arab community that might not go out, not vote, and that could chip the election to Trump. But you also have a country, a, a state like Pennsylvania, with lots of Eastern European immigration, where uh, Trump's wavering on NATO might actually have an effect of strengthening Biden. Uh, Immigration uh, might have more of an impact in Arizona and Nevada um, than foreign policy issues. Again, I think um, uh, the election could be so close as to make any issue a possible turning point. And again, in, in various states, have a particular impact given what happens with events. But again, the, the other thing is, of course, is to remember that uh, in the famous Harold Macmillan uh, quote that's often draw, drawn out that what could change? What could change your program, Mr. Prime Minister? Events, dear boy, events. Events could happen. I mean, you could have a, a Putin's decision to to kill Navalny um, in the midst of this Ukraine debate might actually lead to aid for Ukraine in a way that it might not have otherwise. Uh, you know, events can affect uh, Congress, can affect the presidential election. So, I do see um, that as being also a a, a certainly a, a variable. Uh, uh, right now, though, uh, I'll go with a hunch and maybe played back in a few months that foreign policy won't be the key, but um, it's still going to be there because presidents are foreign policy leaders and the election of the president does always have a foreign policy component. Well, Tom, thank you very much for your time today. As always, uh, a very insightful conversation that I've certainly enjoyed and I'm sure the audience has uh, as well. So many, many thanks. And with that, I'll turn it uh, back over to Pat Ryan for the final sign-off. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, uh, Breck, and uh, thank you, Professor Tom Schwartz, for your outstanding uh, talk, and, and Breck for hosting the webinar today. It's uh, been an exceptional hour, very well spent toward understanding uh, the nexus between uh, American politics and U.S. foreign policy and America's standing in the world. We all can see that uh, the world in 2024 is a very dangerous place and American global leadership is being challenged abroad in ways not seen in recent decades. And, and as well, it's being challenged uh, at home uh, by uh, various American political uh, actors. So it's important to have, a, have conversations like this where we uh, better understand uh, what, the, uh, what the stakes are. And, and Tom, you, you did an outstanding job in, uh, in covering the, the globe 
um, uh, the Sherwin Williams approach to uh, to foreign policy uh, cover, covering the world. There, uh, we're we're now all better equipped to understand uh, the day to day interaction between American politics and what's going on in uh, in global affairs. Uh, so thank you, and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you back for uh, another uh, exposition on uh, American foreign policy. Uh, lastly, uh, uh, let me invite uh, everyone to support uh, these programs, these high-quality programs that we bring to you from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We uh, we operate on a shoestring, and uh, that is helped uh, greatly by your membership and gift to the Tennessee World Affairs Council. You can visit tnwac.org uh, to join and donate. Setting up a monthly gift of $10 uh, will be very helpful to making programs like this possible. Uh, Breck and Tom, uh, thanks again, and uh, everyone have a great day.